had provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. This is, as one preacher says, this is vintage Yahweh. This is God doing the unexpected. He's always doing the unexpected. You read the Bible and his God works in ways that we can't imagine. Can you imagine? You know the story. Don't take this for granted though. Think about it. As far as the sailors are concerned, Jonah's gone. But God's got something else in mind. And he, and he causes a fish. He provides a fish to swallow Jonah so that Jonah is somehow spared. And chapter 2 is all about what happens inside Jonah who is inside the fish. It's all about what's happening in his soul. And we can only assume, I suppose, that this material uh, comes from Jonah himself. There's nobody else there who's witnessing it, is there? So it must be from him himself. Maybe Jonah himself is the author of this book. And it's a deep prayer. It's interesting because if you look at it, you'll notice that it's mainly quotes from other passages in the Bible. It's quotes from other Psalms. It's as if Jonah is, is remembering some of the songs, the praise songs of the Psalms, and he's kind of quoting them in his, in his prayers to God. It's, it's, it's not actually a prayer for deliverance. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. <coughs> Chapter 2. It's a prayer of thanksgiving, quotations. Let me give you an example, Psalm 18. Listen to these words and compare them with what we've just read. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called out to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. You see the echoes there, that's Psalm 18, the echoes of all that here in, in chapter 2 of Jonah. So what do we find here? What's this chapter got to say to us today, this evening? What does it have to say to us? What's going on? Well, two main headings. The first is this, we find Jonah praying. We find Jonah praying. And we've got to learn from his prayer. And the first thing I think noticing uh, as I looked at it is this. It's the prayer, first of all, of a backslider, isn't it? It's the prayer of a backslider. Now that word is used by Jeremiah of the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, who knew God but have slidden away from him. And turned to other gods. Turned away from the living God. And, and, and Jeremiah talks about the nation's backslidings. Well, here we have an individual who has been backsliding. Who knew God. Jonah is a prophet of God. But he, in, all in chapter 1, he has been far away from God. In fact, he's been going as far away from God as he can. We hear in chapter 1, the Lord speaking to Jonah... But Jonah doesn't speak to the Lord. 
we hear the sailors crying out to the Lord. But Jonah doesn't cry out to the Lord. We hear Jonah confessing that he's running away from the Lord. Verse 10, chapter 1. But there's no confession to the Lord that he shouldn't be doing that. And so I think what we find is Jonah's been hardening his heart against the God that he knows is there. And the amazing thing is that although the Lord knows all about Jonah, he doesn't harden his heart towards Jonah. Isn't that amazing? Chapter 2 reveals this same Jonah, this Jonah who's backslidden, changing, and now offering a prayer of thanksgiving. Now, maybe that's something you need to hear this evening. Maybe, maybe this is the point that you need for tonight. Because I know from my own experience, and I know from pastoral experience, it's possible to be in church, but to be far away from God. And uh, it's possible to know a lot about the Lord and to have known the Lord in the past. But in the present, to be far away from that reality. You're not living and walking in the light of that. It's possible for you to know what the Lord wants of you in terms of living and lifestyle and values and priorities but actually be far away resisting that, a bit like Jonah, and saying, I know what you want, Lord, but I am not going to do it. I'm going this way. As a student, I recall meeting a man. He was a Pakistani Christian. I don't know who invited him to our little uh, group. Um, he turned up one day, and I can remember him because he kind of glowed. He glowed as a Christian. He was full of the joy of the Lord. And I don't remember much else, but I remember what he said. This is the thing that he said. Um, the Christian who backslides is the most miserable person in the world. Because he can't enjoy, she can't enjoy the world because she's tasted something much better. And trying to find satisfaction in the world without God, he or she knows that that's futile. But of course, he or she can't enjoy the Lord either because, because she's walked away from him. The most miserable person in the world is a backslidden Christian. We see that in Jonah, don't we, in chapter 1. And the New Testament reminds us that it's a, it's a danger for us all. It's a danger for us all. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. What's the cure? Well, one of the cures is meeting together. One of the cures is being with believers. It says, But encourage one another as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hardened heart is a terrible thing. 
And, and it's a condition that we, we can all be susceptible to. The encouragement here in chapter 2 is that we find the Lord does not give up on Jonah. And he brings him to a place where he actually calls out. He begins to pray. So it's the prayer of a backslider. It's also the prayer of a believer. It's the prayer of a believer. And in the chapter 2, we see a Jonah's tra- this traumatic experience. God is kind of sparking up his faith again. A bit like an engine, a car engine on a cold morning. You know, when you start and it's just beginning to turn over. And then eventually it sparks to life. Well, Jonah's, I think, faith is sparking to life here. Through this ex- experience. What does it mean to pray as a believer? Well, look, at, look how Jonah prays. First of all, it means calling. It means calling. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called, verse 2, for help. There he is in the midst of the waves, gasping. And he hasn't prayed for a long time. But now he's calling. This hardened, backsliding heart is now, is now kind of softened. He recognizes his helplessness. He's no longer proudly self-sufficient and self-reliant. So it means calling. It means uh, looking. Look what he says. I said, verse 4, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. This is the looking of faith, of course, isn't it? Um, I wonder if he's got Solomon's prayer in mind. I wonder if he was aware of Solomon's prayer when the temple was dedicated and Solomon prayed a great prayer about the temple. He never said God is confined to the temple. He says, the Lord is in the heavens. But when your people are far away, when they've sinned, when they've been banished and they look towards your temple, may you hear from heaven and may you forgive them who have sinned against you, forgive all their offenses they've committed against you. And it's as if Jonah has got this in mind and he's saying, maybe he's flashing through his mind and he's saying, Lord, I'm looking to you for your promise. I'm holding on to this. Hear me as I look to you for your forgiveness. And it means remembering. Prayer of faith. Calling Looking and remembering, verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. I suppose that is the opposite of what he'd been like. The opposite of remembering God is shutting him out, isn't it? Refusing to listen to him, not wanting to think about him, ignoring him. Now this is the opposite, this is kind of repentance. It means remembering him. Deliberately and decisively going to God, remembering what he's like, connecting with the Lord again in prayer. It's as if he say, I remember what you're like, Lord. I remember your goodness. I remember your mercy. I remember what you've been to me in the past. I remember your faithfulness. I remember how good it was to walk with you. I remember you, Lord. I remember the promise of your forgiveness. I remember that you're slow to anger. So Jonah's faith is sparked to life. 
calling, looking, remembering. Now it may be that you are in a, you are in a difficult place. At the moment, it may be that the Lord has put you in his sovereignty in, in a hard place at the moment. And it might not be because of your sin. It might not be because you've backslidden at all. Remember that many of the quotes from, of the Psalms that Jonah quotes were written by people who were not sinning against God. For example, David. Some of these Psalms were written by David when he was fleeing from Saul. David was an innocent man. He was trying to be faithful to God. And Saul was hounding him. And some of the Psalms are from that experience. And it may be that God is, is putting you through difficult experiences. And you, you, you can identify with the, the waters kind of engulfing over you. All your waves and breakers are coming over. Coming over you. Uh, Jonah says, identify with that. The pressures maybe of life or the sorrows and the sadnesses. And this passage is here for you. It's saying to you, have faith. Have faith. Keep looking. Keep calling. Keep remembering. Lord, save Jonah as he cried out. He's not indifferent to your cries. So it's the prayer of a backslider. It's the prayer of a believer. And it's the prayer of a confessor. In chapter 1, remember, Jonah confessed um, that he's a prophet of the living God and he's running away. It's, it's ironic, isn't it? In, in verse 9 of chapter 1, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. But it was a kind of hollow confession, wasn't it? Because, oh yeah, he knows God is the creator, the Lord is the creator, but he's running away. It's a hollow confession. But it's not hollow now, is it? Look how he confesses God. He doesn't just confess the Lord to be a creator, but he confesses him to be the the God of grace. Salvation, he says, comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. In other words, it's the Lord's business whom he saves. And he recognizes that from his own experience. He had no claim on, on God's grace as he, as he was hurled into the waves. It was God by his grace who came and saved him. It wasn't as if Jonah swam and did his best and this fish came along and nudged him to shore. It wasn't like that at all. He, had, he was without strength, without hope. And he says, and now I can see salvation comes from the Lord. It is his business. He's not obliged to save anybody. He saves who he wills. And he saved me. And he confesses the Lord to be a God of grace. Look what he says. Verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And I'm thinking, who's he talking about there? Is he talking about the pagans 
uh, you know, the pagan sailors in chapter 1 who are calling on their different gods. Well, he could be, but I wonder if he's talking about himself, his own idols. What were, what were Jonah's idols in chapter 1? Self-sufficiency, pride, maybe national pride. Those who cling to those idols, says Jonah, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. He confesses the Lord to be a God of grace. God's, uh, the Hebrew is hesed, hesed love. That's unfailing love that kind of keeps hold of him. And then he confesses his commitment, you notice, to... Uh, to the Lord in response to the Lord's grace. Verse 9, I with a song of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. And I think probably what he means there is, okay, I'll go to Nineveh. Why? Because of the grace that he's received. It's, it's, it's a response to, to God's amazing mercy and now he says okay lord I'll, I'll go now when he speaks of a sacrifice there it's not a sacrifice of atonement is it it's not a sacrifice for sin it's the sacrifice of his of his life what does hebrews say in view of god's mercy offer up your lives as living sacrifices that's what the that's what the new testament calls us to do in view of god's mercy and his grace Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The grace leads to obedience and commitment to Him. I notice the BBC uh, is promoting a weather app at the moment, and people all over the country are getting onto this app and they're reporting their local weather, and so they can get a big picture of what the weather's like uh, across the UK. And a lady, uh, in response to this, she bought herself a barometer. don't know much about barometers, but I think they kind of measure atmospheric pressure so they can tell you whether the weather's going to be fair or foul, um, whether rain's on the way or not. It gives you an idea of what the atmosphere is like. I think prayer is a bit of a barometer of where we are spiritually. The content of our prayers are a barometer. You see, think about your prayers over the last week for a minute. How much of your prayers have been requests? Lord, help me. Keep me safe, Lord. Keep my kids safe. Help me to get this job. Help me to find a parking space. How, many, how much of our praying is requests? Now you say, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say we should be making requests? Yes, it does. Make your requests known to God. But how much of your praying is thanksgiving? How much of your praying is confessing to God how great he is? And the amazing grace that he has shown you in the fact that you are a Christian 
today. How much, how much of your prayers are focused on that? I think, I think perhaps that's a good barometer of where we are spiritually in our lives. How mature are we as believers? Are we coming to God and understanding what Jonah has understood about the grace of God? And we say sometimes, there but the grace of God go I. It's a quotation from a, from a, a saint of many years ago. It's an awareness of God's grace. How much, maybe this week, an application for us is this, in our praying, less, somebody has said, too many begs in one asket. Okay, in our praying, too many begs in one asket. We're very good beg, begging God. Oh, this is what we need, this is what we need, this is what we need. There's a danger, isn't it? That becomes so self-centered. What about this? What about praying? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace to me. As we've been singing in our songs. Thank you for your grace to me in Jesus Christ. Thank you for opening my eyes. Thank you for standing in the place at the cross for me. We find Jonah praying. A backslider, a believer, a confessor. We also find Jonah pointing. Not only do we find Jonah praying, but in chapter 2, he is pointing. What do I mean? Well, turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. So we're in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12. You've got a church Bible, it's um, nine, page 978. Jonah, remember, is in the, in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. One preacher, uh, commentator, suggests that this kind of catchphrase for long enough to be definitely dead. And at the Lord's command, the fish vomits Jonah out. It's pretty unceremonious, isn't it? But he vomits Jonah out. And Jonah survives. What are we to make of that? Well, this is where we see Jonah pointing to Jesus. Jonah is a sign. How do I know? Well, Jesus says that. Chapter 12 of Matthew and verse 38. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they come to him and they say, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And they are, they, they're not really interested in wanting to believe. They're the kind of people who say, well, prove it, prove it, prove it. And nothing is ever enough. Jesus has performed many miraculous signs up until this point. So we want to see another one. Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. Does Jesus believe in Jonah? Yes, he does. And he says, Jonah is pointing to me. I wonder what they thought of that. I wonder what the people, did they get it? I don't know if they got it, but we should get it, shouldn't we? We should get it. We've got the advantage of the whole story. And this is the main point of Jonah, chapter 2. We are to see it and rejoice in it. Jonah is assigned to Jesus, the lesser to the greater. Just like a sign to Buckingham Palace is not as great as Buckingham Palace itself. Who takes selfies of the sign? You don't take selfies of the sign, do you? You take selfies with Buckingham Palace. You want to be seen with the palace, not the sign. And so it is with us as we read Jonah 2. We want to be identified with, with, with the Lord Jesus. Jonah is pointing us to him. How is he greater? How is Jesus greater than Jonah? Well, think about it. There's a greater distress, isn't there? Greater, Jonah says, in my distress, I cry to the Lord. Jesus Christ suffered far greater distress than Jonah. He said, the night he was betrayed, he's going to pray, and he said to the disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. We think about that. And in his anguish, Luke says, he's sweating drops of blood falling to the ground. He is he's suffering far greater distress than Jonah ever did. The people of, around Jonah wanted to save him. They said, oh, we'll try and save Jonah. Nobody wanted to save Jesus. All his friends had fled. All his enemies are baying for his blood. The greater distress. Jonah hardened his heart towards God. Jesus remained soft towards his Father. All you that pass by, to Jesus draw nigh. To you is it nothing that Jesus should die. Your ransom and peace, your surety he is. Come, See if there ever was sorrow like his. Greater distress. And he's got greater faith as well. Jesus has far greater faith than Jonah. If faith is measured by trust, if faith is measured by confidence in God, Jesus is far greater. He prays and he's wrestling, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He trusts his father. And just as Jonah quoted Psalms, when he was in distress, the Lord Jesus quotes Psalms too. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting, uh, studying that with a couple of people this last week uh, who, who are new to the Bible, and they say, well, why is Jesus saying that? Is it because he's lost faith in God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And I think that's a natural, perhaps, interpretation. Jesus has he's been trusting his Father, and now at the cross, he's lost faith. Really? No, he's quoting Psalm 22. And it would be good tonight if you go home and read Psalm 22 again. Because Jesus there is acknowledging the suffering that he's, go- that he's experiencing. But halfway through that psalm, it changes to triumph. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. Jesus has faith in his Father. And he calls out in a loud voice. One of the last things he says, Luke tells us, Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Where's that from? Well, that's from Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And the quote, the verse goes on to say, Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. Jesus dies trusting in his God, in his Father. He has greater faith than Jonah. And of course, it's a greater sacrifice. It's a greater sacrifice. Jonah offers a sacrifice in response to grace. Lord, you've saved me. Now I commit myself to you. Jesus dies an atoning sacrifice so that we might receive the grace of God and the forgiveness of our sins. But of course, Jesus' main point is this. It's a greater comeback. Jesus has a greater comeback. At God's command, Jonah is vomited onto dry land. At God's command, Jesus is victorious over death. He is victorious. He's long enough to be dead, to be definitely dead. On the third day, God raises him to life. This is what the apostles preached. They grasped it. Peter, Peter got it, didn't he? And he declares... You killed him. God raised him from the dead. God has raised this Jesus to life. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. And of course, Jesus could say it in more dramatic ways. I have power to lay my life down. And I have power to take it up again. This command, this authority I received from my father. Jonah didn't have that. But Jesus goes down into the depths of death and then rises again to live forever. So it's that final parallel, I think, with, with Jonah that Jesus is getting us to think about. And if we, we've got to latch on to that. He was being faced with this unbelief of his generation. He was saying, give us a sign, give us a sign. And it's similar perhaps in our generation. People will not believe. They'll keep on saying, well, let's have a sign. Let's have a sign. Let's... Why doesn't God answer my prayers? I remember hearing the story of the, uh, um, the secular society, I think it is, in, in Britain. The, the guy who's in charge of that, he says, I lost my faith when I was a child. I pray that God would do something. He would do something in the garden for some kind of bins or something. He would do something. He didn't do it, so how can I believe in him? So he becomes a secularist. 
Well, Jesus is saying God is not in the, in the business of doing tricks for the arrogant. But he has given us a sign. He's raised his son from the dead. And we're called to repent and believe in him. And so that's the, I guess, the message for us. Where we respond to this Jesus. We respond to his grace. Respond and repent, perhaps from our rebellion. Repent from our coldness of heart. Repent from our apathy. And come back to following him and loving him. There was a, an incident in the time of Cromwell many, many centuries ago uh, when a young man in Cromwell's army was due to be executed. He'd done something wrong and uh, he was exe- condemned to execution at sundown in a particular village. I don't know where it was, somewhere in the south of England, I think. And he was, he was to be executed when the bell tolled in the churchyard nearby because that marked curfew and then this man was to be executed well this young man uh, was loved by a young lady and uh, she went to the, to the judges and she pleaded for her lover and they didn't heed her she went even to Cromwell and he wouldn't listen to her she went to the uh, to the verger, the guy who was going to ring the bell, and he wouldn't listen to her either. And so all the dignitaries met in the, in, in the, the square, I guess, of the, of the village, and this young man is going to be executed. And this lady, his lover, climbed up the church, right up to where the bells were. And she lay hold of the bell so that it wouldn't, it wouldn't make a noise. She became the buffer for that bell. The verger came to ring the bell. He was deaf. He rang the bell thinking it had sounded and went home. All the people are there waiting for the bell and this man is going to be executed. And the bell doesn't sound. And Cromwell is wondering what's happened. And then who turns up but the, the lady? It has cost her. It has cost her. She's bruised and she is bleeding and he realizes what this woman has done because she loves this young man and Cromwell says there'll be no execution tonight do you not think that that young man felt some kind of obligation to her Do we owe an obligation to the Lord Jesus for his wounds for us? We give our lives to him. Will grace motivate us? I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Amen.
Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you.